Uh, turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 20. We're going to read verses 17 to 34. This is our sermon text for today. And we are finishing up Jesus' crash course on grace for his disciples uh, before he comes into Jerusalem and then shows them his grace through his death. And what we've seen is not only is the only way into Jesus' kingdom by grace, but he rules and reigns his people inside the kingdom by grace, which then flips the whole world upside down. That true greatness, as we're going to see, is through service. And it changes the way we live with one another. And so let's read it and pray. It's Matthew chapter 20, verse 17 to 34. This is God's word. It says, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, We are able. And he said to them, You will drink of my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. And this is God's word. That is true, trustworthy, and given in love. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I ask that you would show us the power of the cross, of Christ our King, using his power and authority to lay down his life for us. And so I pray you would teach us to serve as Christ has served us and to have mercy on us. Open our eyes to those places where we seek to be served rather than to serve, so that we might live like Christ, like our Savior, like our King. In Jesus' name, amen. When was the last time you played that delightful board game, Monopoly? All right. I'm not sure how old I was the last time I played Probably the last time I had eight free hours to finish the game. <laughs> you know, at some point in my childhood, I have a younger sister. She's two years younger than I am. 
and we would play games all the time, but at some point we both figured out that if you were the banker, you had all the power in the game. Right? Not only was it fun because you got to be in charge of the money, which is a great place to be in life, but then you could use it to your advantage if you were quick and sneaky, right? Sticky fingers. And I'm not the only one who did that. Come on. <laughs> right? And so even before we would play the game, we would start arguing over who was going to be the banker. We'd have to go back and forth. Who's going to take that position of honor? We wanted to use our authority to, to smush the competition, right? Crush them into the dust so we could say we are the Monopoly champions. And eventually we just stopped playing the game. <laughs> Right, but wanting to win, wanting the best, wanting to be in charge, that sets the stage for Jesus' conversation with his disciples. Because the disciples, even though they've seen Jesus for three years, they cannot get it out of their heads that power is to be used for my benefit. I want to win. I want to be on top. I want to be in charge. Even as they hear Jesus say, I'm going to die a cruel and an unimaginably painful death on your behalf, the next moment they're saying, well, Jesus, now that you're gone, who's going to get your stuff? <laughs> and so, this is here to teach us, and to teach us we are not that different than they are. And we're, this is a crash course on grace. And so this morning we come to the meaning of the cross and what that means for us. And really what Jesus is asking you is deep down, if you were to ask Jesus or if he was give you the opportunity, to say, Jesus, what do, you, what do you want me to do for you? If you could ask Jesus that question, what would you ask him? Right. And so we got a couple of answers here to give you power and influence, to get you ahead in life, or to ask for mercy. And so let's, let's look at this. In verse 17, this sets the stage for the question. All right, Jesus, for the third time, gives a prediction of how he's going to die. That I am going to die, and this time he gives astonishingly vivid detail as to what will happen. He says, I am walking up to Jerusalem basically to climb on the cross. This is a voluntary thing. He says, I am ascending to Jerusalem even as he's going to be humbled. And he says, you know, the Jews, the chief priests, the scribes, they are going to use the law to unjustly condemn me. They will turn me over to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles will have me, they will make fun of me. They will flog me with a whip that has both metal balls to, to tenderize the flesh and, and sharp shards of metal to tear the skin and to get into the muscle and sinew. I mean, he's going to be mutilated beyond recognition, it says in Isaiah 53. And then he's going to die on a cross and the third day be raised from the dead. And... It's at that moment when James and John's mother comes up to Jesus and says, I want you to do something for me. And really, I, it, the, the, the commentators think that this woman, her name is Salome, is Jesus' aunt, Mary's sister. And if you look at the way Jesus talks to uh, how the conversation go, the mother asks the question and Jesus immediately turns his attention to the boy's it wouldn't surprise me if the boys were the ones that said, hey, mom, will you go ask Jesus this question for us? But immediately as Jesus talks about letting go of his power and authority, they ask, how do we hold on to it? Right? Suffering is not on their minds. They imagine the kingdom to be one of power and glory and greatness and fame, being comfortable, having the best seats in the house. 
And that's when Jesus' aunt, Salome, comes down and begs. Give them the best seats. Give them the left and the right in the kingdom. Right? They're not audacious enough to ask for Jesus' chair, but let's, let's go with the ones right next to him. And in the ancient world, that's where the seats of power were. If you were on the right and on the left, you administered the authority of the king. There were positions of great honor. And then to complete the picture, the other disciples were just mad that they didn't think of it first. Right? And so Jesus has to say, okay, let's have a family intervention here. This is how my kingdom works. Right? The, the Gentiles take their authority and use it for themselves. That's how the world works. They, they lord their authority over others. Right? That's how the ordin- this is just the way of the world. It's good to be the boss, is it not? Right? I mean, it, I was a manager at Dunkin' Donuts for a while after college, and uh, I experienced firsthand both being at the bottom and then being a little bit further up that it's much better to be told, <laughs> it's much better to tell someone to clean the bathrooms than to be told to clean the bathrooms. Right? Authority. How are you going to use it? And so Jesus uses this conflict, this moment, to say, here's what the cross is about and how it should change the way you live. And he says, here's why I came, to give my life as a ransom. This is, this is the, the theology of the cross according to Jesus. And so you've got to ask then, why did Jesus have to die? Why did he say, I, I came to give my life? It's verse 28. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So you got to look at these two words. There's two important words that are the heart of the gospel. You have ransom and for. F-O-R. So the ransom, we all know the, the story of a ransom. A ransom is the, the money that you pay That's in, our, in our day, right? It's what you pay kidnappers to set someone free. There's movies about it. Mel Gibson or, you know, there's always somebody who's angry going to rescue somebody who's been taken hostage. And when whoever's been kidnapped, then the kidnappers ask for a ransom. Right? And so unless you're Chuck Norris, everyone else has to pay. <laughs> and, but we have that idea in our head that ransom is about setting a captive free in terms of, of kidnapping. But in the ancient world, a ransom had much more to do with slavery and buying the freedom of slaves. It literally means to set the captives free. So I can get this to stop making noise here. Right, so Jesus is saying, my life is a ransom. It's the price to set those who are in chains free from slavery. Right? That's the first part. That's what a ransom is. It's, you know, in the ancient world, slavery was mainly debt-based. If you couldn't pay your debts, you went to prison to pay them off. Uh, if you were a prisoner of war, you would, you would be uh, enslaved. And so you could have a loved one come and say, here's an, uh, an equivalent amount of money to reimburse you for the loss of your labor. A ransom. The second word, for, it's a Greek word that literally means in the place of. It's a substitutionary word. And so Jesus is saying, I came to be a ransom payment in your place. Not only am I paying, paying something you can never pay, but I'm also going to stand in your place. It's my life for yours. Now why? 
Why does Jesus have to come and set us free? Why does he have to pay a price for us? And it's all wrapped up into James and John's request when Jesus turns back to them and says, well, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And they uh, humbly say, yes, (laughs) we got this. And it's a weird thing to us, but Jesus is talking about a cup. It's what the disciples, it's a, a common language. They would have understood what Jesus meant. What is the cup? And the cup is an Old Testament picture for God's judgment for sin to deal with the problem of evil. It's God's righteous wrath being poured out on everything that is wrong with this world. To deal with the cosmic power of evil, but all the way down to the individual. Uh, Evil that plagues every human being, that, that runs down the center of every human heart, you and I. Right, so you got all these passages in the Old Testament that talked about it. Psalm 75 says, God's the one who judges. He puts some down and he lifts others up. And in the hand of the Lord is a cup, here's our language, with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. And it's a picture of them getting what they deserve for all the, the cruelty and hardship they've inflicted on others. Uh, In Jeremiah, you got this in Jeremiah 25, the prophet Jeremiah, this was his job. This is kind of like, uh, he was the bad news prophet. He went with this cup to Judah, to Jerusalem, to every nation around to say, God is mad at you for the cruelty, the injustice, the selfishness, the pain. Judgment is coming if you will not repent. And when you drink the cup, Jeremiah promises, it's going to make you crazy with grief, frustration, anger, and pain. Which is saying, this is not a drink you want to drink. It's not, it doesn't taste good. It's going to, with the cup always comes the sword of judgment, saying you're guilty. Jesus says, I'm going to drink that cup. I'm willfully going to Jerusalem to drink every last drop. And that's, that's the reason for ransom. God is angry at sin, at sinners, at evil. He's, he's angry and hurt and upset the way you would be upset with a loved one who is making all kinds of questionable decisions, chasing drugs or alcohol, destroying their lives, right? That kind of anger. He says, justice has to be paid, and Jesus steps up and says, I am here to, to pay that payment for you, to set you free. You want to use your power and influence, he says to James and John, to be served, but I came to serve you. And there's more. Because it's not that he's the ransom, just that he's the ransom for us. It's who he claims to be that's so astounding. Because he specifically calls himself the Son of Man, which is a mysterious figure from Daniel chapter 7. So there's a lot of Old Testament Bible here. Right, but Daniel 7, we've talked about it before. Just, just to remember who Daniel was, this puts it in perspective. Daniel was a person of royalty in Jerusalem. And then the Babylonians came about 500 B.C., uh, and they kidnapped him from his home, and he went from being royalty in Jerusalem to being a slave, a servant, in this pagan government to serve Nebuchadnezzar. It's a depressing change of events. He went from up top to being down on bottom. And so 
What's fascinating is Daniel is the living picture of the Old Testament command to serve. Because Jeremiah wrote a letter to all the exiles, like Daniel living in Babylon, all those whose lives have been flipped upside down, you are now servants, you are enslaved against your will. Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29 said, here's what I want you to do. You know those who killed your loved ones? You know those who've dragged you unwillingly through the desert? Uh, you know, you're now you're in a foreign place where people are immoral, they're corrupt, they have just a different way of life than you. I want you to serve them and pray for them and work for their well-being. And Daniel took it seriously. He is a guy who worked in a pagan government, did it well, did not complain until it, it affected his relationship with God. Right? But he... He is a guy who is serving his enemies. And while he's in Babylon, as a slave, he has these two visions. Right? The first one is about four different kingdoms. And it's about these great kingdoms in the old world, right, where they would come through with an army and the sword and just slaughter everyone who was weak. And say, this is my kingdom, and they'd plant a flag. And so there are four pictures of that. He had four animals. He had a lion with eagle's wings, talking about how strong and fast they are. A bear with ribs in its mouth, which is incredibly graphic and violent. A leopard with four wings on its back. And the fourth animal was terrifying, this massive kingdom that's going to swallow up the world. Right? And so you ha Daniel had this vision of all kinds of people going through the same thing that he was. To be on the bottom, to be victims of the powers of this world. Of kings who would use their authority to shed blood of others to get what they want. And then he had a second vision. Same chapter. It's a, it's a vision of heaven, and God is seated on his throne of judgment, the Ancient of Days, and it's this picture of a throne that's on fire. It's got wheels on fire. There are thousands of attendants and servants around God. The books were open, and judgment began. And in a moment, that terrifying beast was killed signifying the power of God. He's, he is in control of every detail, even these kingdoms that rule with the sword. And then to the throne room comes this mysterious figure, the Son of Man. He's human. He looks just like us. But God gives him all authority, a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. It will not pass away. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Here comes a someone just like us who is a king who will put all those enemies under his feet. And Jesus says, that guy, that's me. <laughs> Ultimate cosmic power was given to me, and I am going to use that to be your ransom. The world uses the sword to shed others' blood to get what they want. I want you, and so I'm going to shed my own blood so that you might be a part of my kingdom. For I did not come to be served, but to serve. And you see what he went through to do it. He knew exactly what he was signing up for. Right? Where he promised, rather than make you go mad with grief and sorrow over what you will lose for my sake, I'm going to go mad first, as I bear your judgment for you. And you go to the Garden of Gethsemane the night before Jesus was crucified and you find Jesus with the sons of Zebedee, James and John, in the garden 
and they hear Jesus pray. He's about to do what he promised. Lord, my soul is sorrowful, even to the point of death. He's saying, I don't know if I can keep on living. This is crushing me. And if possible, let this cup, this wrath, this anger, this thing I've promised to do, let it pass from me. And James and John then, I imagine, is life-changing. They watch Jesus literally sweat tears of blood in agony as he wrestled with this. Being obedient to God's call in his life to serve rather than be served. Jonathan Edwards, an old pastor, gives us a, a picture and tell, tells us what is, what is going on there. Why is Jesus so upset? And Edwards says that Jesus is getting a vivid, bright, full view of the oncoming wrath of God that he is going to drink. That's what he saw. That God the Father placed this cup of wrath in front of him and it was vastly more terrible and terrifying than Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace of old. It's basically where God said to Jesus, Son, here is the cup you will drink. Look at it, smell it. If you don't drink it, they will perish. But if you drink it, we will, they will become a part of our kingdom. Will you voluntarily jump into the fiery furnace of my wrath? And so Edwards continues by saying, Look, Jesus had a close-up view of what that felt like. He could feel the flame, so to speak, on his face, the heat. It's like he stared into the volcano of God's wrath and was wrestling with it. But in love, he said, not my will be done, but yours, Father. And he stayed. He jumped in to be your ransom. And he did that so that we might be set free forever from ever having to drink that cup. We'll drink a smaller cup. We'll have to suffer smaller things. But really, to drink the cup is to have our life, our destiny. It's a cup of fellowship. To have the same future. Say, I'm binding myself to you. And so when Jesus, when he drank that cup down to the bitter dregs, he's saying, I drank this for you so that you may now drink in fellowship with me so that I might serve you for all the days of your life. Now, that is astounding news. If you have not put your faith in that Savior, I mean, there is no king like him who is infinitely great and that infinitely humble. <laughs> side by side. The Son of Man becoming a ransom. But then you got to ask, the disciples have been around this. This isn't the first time they've heard something like this. Why are they so dim and dumb and slow to understand? And frankly, I find it comforting because I'm that dim and slow and dumb and slow to understand because they can't see their need. And as soon as you talk about this, I mean, I could feel the awe, but we still have objections that rise up in the depths of our hearts. We get offended by the idea that Jesus had to drink a cup. And why is God so angry? Why can't he just chill out and forgive us? And you think about all those ancient stories we read in high school and college about the ancient gods who just, right, they just needed to chill out because they were angry and people died. Right? You think of the Mayan temples 
We want to have a good harvest and literal heads roll down the temple to ensure that harvest. Uh, you can think of Agamemnon, the ancient Greek king who ticked off a god. He offended her, and so he's ready to go uh, rescue Helen of Troy, and he's sailing across the sea, and the god just makes the wind stop. He's going to die. And the only way the wind can pick up again is if he would sacrifice his daughter to this god to appease her wrath. And, and that's what people hear when, that's sometimes what we hear. You know, why is God so angry? It seems so bloodthirsty and primitive to demand a sacrifice uh, to, to allow us into the kingdom. Right? But it's not going away. We still do it. We have modern day versions where we sacrifice the lives of our children for our career. Uh, in Uganda, it's literal. Uh, they, it's, there is an anti-human sacrifice task force as people sacrifice literal children uh, for earthly blessings. Right. And so you got to ask, what is Jesus talking about? Why is it? This anger that God has is different. And here's the key. Tim Keller helped me with this. He said, every act of love is uh, an act of substitutionary atonement. Every act of love involves some kind of substitution and sacrifice. You can't avoid it. Just look at the parents. <laughs> right, parents, I mean, how many years do we sacrifice uh, for our, our cute and adorable black holes of need <laughs> right, before they give back? Years. But if we ignore them, if we say, well, it's not about my kids' will being done, it's about my will being done, and I want to be comfortable and go out Friday night, and I just, I know you're sad, but I don't want to meet that need right now. If you just ignore your kids, they grow up into even deeper kinds of dysfunction and need, demanding people serve them because they were never served to begin with. See, the only way to love somebody, to really love them, even when you're angry at them, is to sacrifice for them. You do that with the poor. You are literally taking money out of your account to put it in someone else's account. And that takes time. It takes money. It takes energy. I mean, there's a pastor who talked about in the 1800s, he, he lived this out, that if you're going to love the poor, it involves substitutionary sacrifice. Now, he was ru running to church, or he was, the pastor was walking to church and came upon somebody who, who had a disability and was on crutches. And the, the heavens were about to unload on him with rain. And the pastor did the math that there was no way this young man would ever get to church on time. And so the pastor, Pastor Richard, much to this guy's objections, just said, well, you're not going to get there dry, so let me carry you. And so he took him up on his back like a piggyback ride. And everybody thought that was below the cloth, the dignity of the cloth. The pastor was made fun of. He was mocked, he was scorned as he gave his life, he gave his energy, his strength, just to love this man. And that's just one moment. Substitutionary sacrifices. He took on the mocking of this, this young man in order to lift him up and honor him, honor his humanity. Right. And so you can't get around, if you want to be loved, you need a ransom. You need someone to pay the price. God can't just forgive. A price has to be paid. And that's, that's the other part that we get annoyed by is we get offended by Jesus' ransom. 
A ransom implies you live your life in chains. If you're a slave, that, that drives us modern people crazy. That, that apart from Jesus, we do have chains. And the disciples are the living, vivid picture of it. They're, they're completely enslaved to themselves. Sound familiar? I mean, <laughs> I love what David Foster Wallace says. He, he starts off talking to college students. And he says, everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe, the realest, most vivid, and important person in existence. We rarely talk about this sort of natural, basic self-centeredness because it's socially repulsive, but it's pretty much the same for all of us deep down. And all he's saying is we walk around worried about ourselves and our kingdom and our life more than anything else. And part of what we need to be rescued from is ourself. That's what Jesus is saying. That we are enslaved to our agenda. We walk around as Lord of our own kingdoms inside of our minds. Right? And we usually don't see it until we get put in relationship with other people. We say, I want to sit there. That's a better seat. Right? I want to be the banker. I want to destroy you at Monopoly. <laughs> I mean, it works its way down into the little things. But Jesus is telling you if, you, if you want me to be your ransom, you have to own your slavery to self. Your, your bondage to the desire to, be, to use what you have to get others to serve you. All right. And so let me ask you this. What do you want Jesus to do for you? Do you want him to be your ransom? Do you see your slavery? I mean, when was the last time you may have been right but confessed to being wrong out of love for the person next to you? Or think about your prayer life. I mean, this is astounding. This is the prayer life of the disciples. Lord, help me get ahead of everyone else in life. I mean, how many of your prayers are like that? It's not bad to ask for things to, for your daily bread. But Jesus is saying, what you need more, what you need most, is for me to be my ransom, to be your ransom. And the nail in the coffin, so to speak, of the ugly picture of, of why we need Jesus to be who he is. But you got the best religious people of the day, the chief priests and scribes. What do they do? They're so enslaved to self and power and authority and being on top that they cheat the system. They make sure Jesus is unjustly condemned under the law. I mean, they basically, they're murderers in the name of God to, to keep their place of power. Pontius Pilate, he's terrified of losing his power too, and that's why Jesus is killed, to save Pilate's skin. So you see the picture here? Jesus is saying, before you ever think about serving someone else, you need to confess to the depths of your soul your own slavery, and your need to be ransomed. Because it sets you free. And it sets you free from yourself to the point where I think this is what the disciples are doing here, where we learn to laugh at our own ridiculousness. And here's what I mean. And I think we'll end here with this. Is right after this command to, to serve like you've been served by Jesus, uh, is this picture of two blind men crying out for mercy. So you have two disciples who are in their, their pride asking to get ahead, 
And then you have two blind men saying, Jesus, I just want you to have mercy on me. I'm down here. And it's, it's, it's a vivid parable where every single, I think Peter, James, John, all the disciples had this burned in their mind. I mean, why is it that those who are physically blind understood how the kingdom worked when those who spent the most time with Jesus were the most blind to how Jesus was working? <laughs> I think when they put this right next to the Son of Man came to be served, what the disciples are saying out loud publicly over and over again, look, we were dumb, we were dim, we couldn't see, we didn't get it. And isn't it wonderful that Jesus, the great one, served these blind men, even as we were arguing over something else? They're publicly confessing their sin in the gospel by putting this right next to it. They're, they're, they're owning their ridiculousness, their, their slavery to self, as a way of teaching us to say, look, we need to, what we should ask Jesus for first and foremost is mercy. And so I think this is what we need to learn from that is, Lord, we need you to open our eyes to see our need for grace and to give us the humility to say we too are like the disciples. We believe we need you to save us, and yet at the same time we argue over the best seats in the house. It should give us a lighthearted joy. I mean, it's sad and it's hurtful in the moment, but to be able to look back and say, yeah, that was, that was silly, wasn't it? It was such a small thing in light of the the glory of the kingdom. Right. On with this story, because I think it models it pretty well. Uh, Jeannie Gaffigan is the wife of uh, Jim Gaffigan, the, the comedian. I don't know if you've ever seen any of his stuff. But she tells the story when she had two young children and she was pregnant with her third, that when, her, that her, when she were, they were traveling back, they had just gotten home, and she received a phone call that her father somewhere else far away, had a stroke. And he was in the ER, and it was touch and go, and they didn't know if he was going to make it, and so they immediately had to jump back on a plane to go visit and be with family. And so, because it was her dad, uh, she's obviously hysterical and freaking out, as you would understand. And so Jim, being the, the good husband, starts serving his wife. He starts packing, and so she's on the phone screaming, we got to go, we got to go. Jim, you have to pack everything. And at some point, she notices her husband packing a suit for a possible funeral. And she just starts screaming at him, what are you doing? Don't you have any faith that God's going to save him? And Jim said, well, I don't want to be there and not be prepared for anything that might happen. And she just goes into him again. He says, okay, fine, I'll put it back. And he takes the suit out and continues packing. And about five minutes later, she comes back and starts laying into him and saying, I can't believe you're not going to pack a suit for my father's funeral. Don't you care? What, don't you want to look good? And to the point, Jim just says, oh, my gosh, I can't win. <laughs> and ten years later, they're, they're laughing about it. They're, they're able to tell the story publicly because they recognize that our slavery to self makes us do ridiculous things. But Christ redeemed us we have the Son of Man, our hero cosmic king, who came down to serve people he knew would argue <laughs> in order to set us free so that we might be a community that airs our dirty laundry, so to speak. I mean, this, this dirty laundry has been out there for 2,000 years, <laughs> teaching. Do you see it? Because we are ransom, we've been set free. 
We have God's righteousness in Christ. We don't have to, we don't have to hold on to what God has given us. He's set us free. So go and learn what it means that the Son of Man came to be served, uh, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, which includes us through his death. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your grace that Jesus would, despite our objections, go to the cross anyway and show us what we're like, and yet at the same time give us a love that's deeper than we can imagine, uh, setting us free to serve one another, even while we're losing. And so I pray for us as a church that we would be willing to, to set aside our winning, to serve our neighbors, and even do the hard things, such as swallow our pride, uh, for the sake of the ones you've put in our lives. So make, make Hope Church, we pray, a gospel refuge in this community. In Jesus' name, amen.